Blog Talk Radio. This is Dr. Ross Green. Welcome to Collaborative Problem Solving at Home. I'm delighted that you were able to join in. This program airs each Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time during the school year. We explore a variety of topics aimed at helping you better understand and help your challenging child and implement the collaborative problem-solving approach at home. If you have a question or comment, call 347-994-2981. That's 347-994-2981. If you call in, you'll be muted until I bring you on the air. And now, let's talk about your challenging child and what we can do to make things better. Well, hi there. Good morning. Uh, welcome to the program. Um, good to have you with me today if you're listening live, if you're listening to the recorded version. Good to have you with me whenever you're going to be listening. Um, I do this program once a week during the school year, and um, this is... Um, my attempt to provide you with the support that you need if you're struggling with a challenging kid or struggling to apply the collaborative problem-solving approach. Um, these are your 45 minutes. Um, so I'm hoping that you're feeling some support from these programs, especially as it relates to how to do Plan B and how to understand your challenging kid better. Um, Remember, Plan B doesn't go so well sometimes early on. Those first Plan Bs that you're doing are for practice. Got to get the practice in to get good at it. Sometimes you get lucky, and on those early Plan Bs when you're practicing, you actually do get some problems solved, but mostly you find out how hard Plan B is to do, and then you work out the kinks. Early Plan Bs are for practice and for working out the kinks. Of course, you never know when a kink is going to come up in Plan B, but kinks usually declare themselves early on. Plan B is hard. It takes practice. It's not a technique. It's a process. It's a process by which you come to understand your challenging kid better and interact in ways that make fundamental changes in your relationship with your kid and the way you communicate with them, and especially how you both go about trying to solve problems. You know, if you're using Plan A, you're solving problems unilaterally by imposing your will. If you're using Plan B, you're solving problems collaboratively by working together. Boy, there's a huge difference there. Plan A causes challenging behavior and challenging kids, and yet it's extremely popular. Somewhere along the line, somebody came by the idea that kids who are easily frustrated, inflexible, have difficulty solving problems, that the best way to deal with them was by being inflexible ourselves. A actually, you know, i got to correct that. That's not where being inflexible with challenging kids came from. Being inflexible with them came from the belief that they are manipulative, attention-seeking, coercive, limit-testing, unmotivated. That's why Plan A has been so popular for so long. We've been believing the wrong thing about challenging kids for so long. 
But we now know challenging kids are challenging because they're lacking the skills not to be challenging. It's about skills. It's about development. It's not about poor parenting, and it's not about a kid who's not motivated. We got them wrong. We got the kids wrong. We got their parents wrong. Time to get them right. Challenging kids don't need more imposition of adult will, and they don't need more imposed consequences. Number one, they've already been suffering the natural consequences of their actions for a very long time. If consequences would have gotten the job done, those very powerful, very persuasive natural consequences would have done it a long time ago. But then we make matters worse often by saying to ourselves, well, and we don't often say this consciously, we sort of do it automatically just because of the way things are done, sometimes because of the way we were raised ourselves. We say, well, uh, apparently those natural consequences, they're not powerful and persuasive enough. We'll add more consequences those of the imposed variety. And we make things worse because consequences, whether of the natural or imposed variety, don't teach challenging kids the skills they're lacking, and consequences, whether of the natural or imposed variety, don't help solve the problems that are reliably and predictably setting in motion challenging episodes. But it's no accident that Plan B is hard. Most of us didn't get a whole lot of training in Plan B when we were kids, which means we're not good at it yet. Hopefully, the streaming video on the Lives in the Balance website and all of the audio programming that's on there from this radio program, from the recorded versions of the radio program, are helping you get better at it. There's more streaming video coming um, it'll show up in the Plan B in Action section in another week or two. As soon as I'm done editing it, I'll post it, and you'll get to see even more Plan B. But now with real adults doing real Plan B with real kids, I think that the versions of Plan B in the Plan B in Action section on the Lives in the Balance website now, those are using actors, and I think they give some pretty realistic um examples of what Plan B can look like and what you don't want it to look like. But nothing beats the real McCoy, and the real McCoy is coming. In the meantime, I know it's hard. Not only is it hard, you may not have much to show for your efforts early on, um, except practice. But early on, the goal is to you know, just do the three ingredients, figure out what ingredients you're having trouble doing, figure out is your kid able to participate in Plan B. There's a, there's a lot of things that can go awry with Plan B. Luckily, it's a finite number. can feel a little overwhelming in the beginning, but it's a finite number of things that can go wrong with Plan B that can cause Plan B not to be as effective as you might have hoped. Uh, maybe your observation in the empathy step wasn't very neutral, so the kid wouldn't talk to you. Maybe the unsolved problem you were trying to work on wasn't very specific, so he didn't really know what you were asking about. The unsolved problem was too vague. Maybe you weren't doing Plan B proactively. Maybe you were doing it emergently. Um, much harder 
for Plan B to be productive if it's being done emergently rather than proactively. Maybe you weren't doing Plan B at all. Maybe you're doing Plan A. Plan A is a conversation stopper. Maybe you had trouble, and this is, of course, the hardest part of the empathy step. Maybe you had trouble drilling for information in the empathy step. Maybe you needed a little bit of help. And by the way, all of these things that are hard, there's audio programming on the Lives in the Balance website to help you with it. That's the cool part. When you're running into trouble, there's probably an audio program to help you through it. Um, maybe the kid, when you did the empathy step, he wouldn't talk. I hear that one a lot. He wouldn't talk. Now, this is going to sound a little harsh, not meant to be, but most of the time kids don't talk. It's actually more because of how we started the empathy step than because the kid is lacking the skills to talk or doesn't want to talk. But drilling for information is definitely the hardest part of the empathy step. Maybe that's where things are going awry for you. Maybe um, you had trouble getting your own concern on the table in the define the problem step. Maybe you left the plan B territories after you did the define the problem step and headed straight for plan A and tried to impose a solution. Well, that, that's not the third ingredient. The third ingredient is brainstorming. This is where you're brainstorming solutions so as to try to come up with one that's realistic, meaning both parties can do what they agreed to. That's a place where Plan B sometimes goes awry. Sometimes people agree to solutions that they know the kid can't perform or that they themselves can't perform. It's common when people are new at Plan B to sign off on a solution that isn't realistic. Common to sign off on solutions that don't really address the concerns of both parties that aren't mutually satisfactory. These are common ways in which Plan B often goes awry in folks who are new to it. But the trick is to recognize it and then try not to do it again. And these days I'm recommending that at the end of every Plan B, not only do you agree with the kid to return to Plan B if the first solution doesn't quite solve the problem durably, but also, before you sign off on a solution, do a probability estimate in your head. Say to yourself, what do I think the odds are of the solution that we're about to execute, that we're about to agree to? What do I think are the odds of that solution working? If your answer to yourself is below 60 to 70%, then you've got some more thinking to do before you sign off on the solution. You've got to think about what it is about the solution that you are on the verge of agreeing to that you think isn't going to work. And then say it. Here's i got some concerns about this solution. Let me tell you what they are. And so you're refining the solution before you're signing off on it. A lot of ways in which Plan B can go awry. But the number of ways in which it can go awry are finite, which means we can talk about those ways and help you through them. That's the goal. That's the goal of the audio programming and the uh, streaming video on the Lives in the Balance website, and that, of course, is the goal of this web-based radio program. So, if you're working with a kid at home who's not responding very well to Plan B, if you're running in trouble, if the Plan B ship is running aground, uh, you know where to call. 
The number is 347-994-2981. Again, 347-994-2981. If you're running into trouble getting the folks at school to use collaborative problem solving or the folks at home or the grandparents or the soccer coaches, this is your 45 minutes, your chance to call in, comment, ask questions, get the support you need, or if you feel like it, just listen to others who are using the collaborative problem-solving approach. If you're not the type to call in, you can always send me a question electronically through the contact form on the Lives in the Balance website. That's www.livesinthebalance.org. I'm betting you've been on that website already. Cool. thought I'd start today with some email. Uh, we'll see if anybody calls in today. Here's a question. Uh, Dr. Reed, I'm having a little trouble with the last part of the model, when the parent and kid are trying to work something out in a mutually satisfactory way. Um, when you have a challenging child, you feel like your life is falling apart. I believe the concept of working something out with the child can be so foreign, so unexact. You need precise steps. I'm desperate to have some sort of order, some control. It's a difficult concept to let go of, and it's hard to try something new. Children don't come with instructions. The mental health profession can teach us to fish, but we have to do the fishing. You have to learn our, we have to learn ourselves to work something out with the child. Well, I totally agree. Children don't come with instructions. It's absolutely true. That's why we've been having trouble understanding challenging kids for a very long time, and most of us tend to rely on how we were parented but how we were parented doesn't always work with our offspring because they're not us. Um, kids don't come with instructions, but Plan B does. And um, that uh, brainstorming phase, the invitation step of Plan B, it's got some pretty explicit components to it. And um, I devoted an entire one of these programs to the invitation, the brainstorming phase. Um, the, the main goal is to recap the concerns of both parties. By the way, that entire program is on the Lives in the Balance website. You just got to find it in the audio programming section. I don't remember if it's in the parenting program section or the educator uh, programming section, but I'm sure it's on one of them. Um, the goal is to recap the concerns of both parties that should put so much energy into getting onto the table in the first two ingredients of Plan B, the empathy step and the define the problem step. And what you've got in front of you then, when you've recapped the two concerns, is the concerns that need to be addressed for the problem to be solved. And then all you're really doing is opening the discussion up for solutions. 
and you're exploring the universe of solutions. And then the only thing to bear in mind is the definition of a good solution. As I was just talking about, it's got to be realistic. You don't want to sign off on solutions that don't address, that aren't realistic. Solutions that both parties can't actually do. I sometimes have referred to that as pie-in-the-sky plan B. Wishful thinking plan B. So often, what we adults do is we envision what we want the kid to look like. And then we tell the kid how he needs to do it better. And then if we're incentive-oriented, we think of a good reward that the kid could get if he looks like what we want him to look like. Of course, what we're missing when we're doing all of that is that if he could look like what we wanted him to look like, he would look like what we wanted him to look like. He's lacking the skills to look like what we wanted him to look like. So simply giving him the incentive, a reward, to look like what we wanted him to look like isn't going to get the job done if he's lacking the skills. And let there be no doubt, if you're punishing him for not having those skills, well, he's, that's not the way to help a kid develop new skills. I can't think of another realm in which we would think that punishing a kid would be the best way to get him to look like what we want him to look like. No, we got to get to know him. we got to figure out why he's not doing well. Truth is, our definition of what he should look like probably isn't so far removed from the norm of what kids look like. It's just that this kid is lacking the skills to look like the norm. Once again, rewarding him is not going to teach him those skills. Punishing him is not going to teach those skills. And he's not looking the way we want him to look under very specific conditions that I call unsolved problems. Rewarding him and punishing him isn't going to solve those problems either. No, we're going to have to solve those problems collaboratively. Imposing our will isn't going to solve those problems. Been there, done that. We know what that looks like. That gets holes punched in our walls. I know how to keep the holes from getting punched in your walls and also how to solve the problems that are setting in motion challenging behavior and simultaneously teach kids the skills they're lacking. It's called Plan B. Once again, Plan B always ends with a an agreement to return to Plan B if the first solution doesn't solve the problem durably. First solutions often don't solve the problem durably because, well, most often because the first solution, even though we tried hard to think about whether it was realistic and mutually satisfactory, maybe there was something about it that wasn't so realistic and didn't really address the concerns of both parties. And we're doing our probability estimate so that we're really giving thought to the solution that we're about to agree to before we agree to it. We're trying to shoot holes in the solution before we run with it. Okay, now I have several here that are similar. I get a lot of questions by email about doing collaborative problem solving with younger kids. So uh, we're going to talk about that a little bit here. Uh, here's one. Please help me help my three-year-old before he gets older. I have read and reread your book. 
I understand the process of Plan B, but I cannot seem to tailor it to a three-year-old's thinking. Please help. Thank you. Another one. Have you worked with preschool children with these issues? We have a four-year-old, and a lot of the challenges that you describe in your book, The Explosive Child, um, apply to our kids. I'm continuously frustrated by people who say things like, if you try this, or they need more discipline, or you have to have consistent rules and be firm. Well, I've worked with children for over 20 years. This is still the email. And I'm about to receive my master's in early childhood education. I've tried all the tricks that most parents try, such as rewards in the form of treats or sticker charts, timeouts, taking away privileges, using punishments, trying to reason, etc., some of these strategies have worked in the short term, but in the long run, they have all failed. It has been beyond frustrating for my husband and I. I'm sure my kids aren't too happy either. I've never wanted to be the parent who yells and threatens. I know there are better and more respectful ways to parent, but until you're in this situation, it's hard to understand. It is exhausting. I know. Nothing's more exhausting than having unsolved problems that don't get solved, having kids who have challenges that are poorly understood. And it doesn't help to have people providing what I call over-the-back-fence advice. And a lot of the advice that's given to parents of challenging kids is over-the-back-fence advice, stuff that gets said without people really having a clear understanding of what's getting in a kid's way. Uh, this reader, this uh, emailer says that they've just begun reading the book and are seeing a behaviorist. Well, now that's, be careful. What you're reading in the book may not be consistent with what a behaviorist might tell you. Behaviorists are all different, but many people who call themselves behaviorists are very oriented toward treats, sticker charts, timeouts, taking away privileges, using punishments, trying to reason, etc. The stuff that you're telling me hasn't worked. So uh, be careful. Note, my whole goal in writing The Explosive Child was, you know, there's this huge part, I've said this on this program before, if we don't understand what's getting in a kid's way, that is scary and exhausting and isolating very hard to have a kid who's not acting like everybody else's kid. You know the looks, and you know the back over-the-back-fence advice. There's only one antidote to that. Well, there's, there's getting support, um, possibly from other parents, and, and yes, lives in the balance. There are support options in the pipeline that I'm going to be talking more about in a month or two just to connect parents who have challenging kids and want to feel so not alone. Um, but understanding what's getting in your kid's way is key as well. That's why I wrote The Explosive Child. I think that uh, there are better ways to understand challenging kids than that they need more discipline 
that, that comes from a completely different belief system that you have to use consistent rules and be firm. That comes from a completely different belief system about why challenging kids are challenging. It's over-the-back fence advice. It's, it's almost, those are almost cliches, things just people say. But that's similar uh, to the first one, which is how do you do collaborative problem solving with a three- or four-year-old? I promise I'm getting to the answer in a second, but let me read a few more here that are similar. One more. I have a three-year-old who has a hard time with flexibility, frustration, tolerance, and problem-solving skills. Sounds like my kind of kid. I'm currently reading your book, The Explosive Child, and I've watched your videos on the website. Good. I like to think that my husband and I know a thing or two about children, but I admit that I'm a plan A parent and it is not working. We are enduring daily battles of getting out of bed, there's one unsolved problem, and dressed for the day, there's another unsolved problem, going into the classroom, a third unsolved problem, dinner food selections, a fourth unsolved problem, washing hair, number five, staying in bed, number six, leaving or not leaving a light on at night. Excellent job of identifying unsolved problems, and good that you're realizing that plan A isn't solving those unsolved problems. I'm still reading from the email here. It's exhausting. Well, you and the person whose email I just read have something in common. My husband is also a plan A parent, but seems to do better at calming our daughter down in the midst of her fits, screaming bouts, and all-out tantrums. Can CPS be used with a three-year-old? And do any ad- adaptations need to be made to accommodate their limited vocabulary? and ability to communicate feelings and emotions. Thanks. First of all, thanks very much for these emails. As you can tell, they're all sort of similar. Not only asking the question, how do you do this with a three- or four-year-old, but how do you, well, but verifying. Well, We have self-professed Plan A parents here in this last email simultaneously telling us that they're exhausted. Yeah, I know. Plan A is exhausting. Doing what's not working will wear you out. So will, when you're doing what's not working, your kid's response to what's not working fits, screaming bouts, all-out tantrums. I'm glad, in terms of email number three, that your husband is good at calming your daughter down. But we want to make sure that that skill is obsolete, pronto. We want to solve those unsolved problems that you did an outstanding job of listing so that she doesn't need to be calmed down. She won't need to be calmed down if those problems are solved. So uh, let's go down the... Well, first of all, yes, you can you can make a list of unsolved problems for a three- or four-year-old. So, so far, we haven't ruled out that the model can be applied to a three- or four-year-old. Really, quite frankly, the main issue in doing Plan B with a three- or four-year-old would be communication skills. And there are some three- or four-year-olds who have very well-developed communication skills and can participate in Plan B. And there are some three- and four-year-olds who's communication skills are not quite so well developed and I know what you thought I was about to say. 
you thought I was about to say, they can't. That's not what I was about to say. They can too. Sometimes you just have to make some adjustments, which I'm about to talk about. But yes, we can make a list of unsolved problems for a three- or four-year-old. I do want to say this. Remember, collaborative problem-solving is not only three steps. It's a way of interacting with and solving problems with kids, which means you could be doing you could be applying some very crucial ingredients of collaborative problem solving with an infant. You could be applying ingredients of collaborative problem solving practically the minute a kid pops out. Crying is a form of communication. And that's the primary way in which infants let us know something isn't right. Now, if we can say to the infant in so many words, get over it, we're doing it this way, uh, that's an approach to that infant that I think isn't responsive to that infant's needs. Yeah, I know, it. they're not using words yet, so you've got some figuring out to do. Why is the infant crying? What's the infant trying to tell us that they don't yet have the words to let us know. Wet diaper, hunger, something about the formula that you put in them that didn't quite agree with them. Uh, cold, heat, sudden noises. Infants, let us know. The big question is, how badly do we want to find out? And how badly do we want to be responsive to what we do find out? What you can tell is, I've just described some of the ingredients of Plan B. Let's figure out what the kid's concern or perspective is. Infants can't use words, but they do let you know something's the matter. Your job, use your powers of observation and intuition to try to figure it out. If the crying doesn't stop, and some people would call that colic, um, see if you can find um, someone who can find out why your infant is crying so much. Um, same ingredients of Plan B, and then try to be responsive to it. Now, can you do mutually satisfactory solutions with an infant? Well, if the solution works, then it was presumably mutually satisfactory, and if it didn't, then I guess it wasn't. Interesting. Same ingredients. Now, using that as our backdrop, can you do Plan B with a three- or four-year-old? Yeah. Uh, is the three- or four-year-old able to use words to let you know what their concerns are? Well, it would certainly be easier if they had the words to do that, but you still have your powers of observation, and you still have your intuition, just like an infant. And can the three- or four-year-old understand your concern or perspective? Uh, probably, if you put it in terms that they can understand. And can a three- or four-year-old participate in generating solutions? Many can. 
can a three or four year old let you know if the solution is realistic and mutually satisfactory, meaning they can they can follow through on their part of the agreement and the agreement addresses their concern or perspective. Well, if they can't let you know in words, right, as you're agreeing to it, then you'll probably find out when you start applying the solution. Can you, if you would like the three or four-year-old to be using words and the three or four-year-old isn't currently using words, can you teach a basic vocabulary so that the kid is able to let you know what the concerns are? Yes, you can. Can you make a list of those concerns? And if the kid isn't able to recite what their concern is, can they at least let you know which of the concerns on their list, on your list, are the ones that are getting in the way right now? Yes. If you have a three or four year old who can't even do that, can you put their concerns into pictures and have a card that pictorially depicts their potential concerns so that they don't have to use words yet. They can just point, yes, and do all those things. And new pictures get added to the card when you discover that there are some unsolved problems that didn't have pictures on the card. And now you're expanding the number of unsolved problems that the kid might want to let you know are coming into play at any given moment. Can you, if you really were ambitious, make that card with pictures of unsolved problems on it, hot, cold, hungry, thirsty, others, scared, nervous? Can you create a binder with that unsolved problems card as the front cover, and have sections in the binder, also with pictures in them, corresponding to each of the unsolved problems. Yep, I've come to call this a problem-solving binder. And can you, can the kid learn to leaf through in the binder to the section that corresponds to the unsolved problem that's popped up for them, and point to a solution depicted in pictures that would work for them at that moment. Yeah. Three or four-year-olds can be taught to do that. And 15 and 16-year-olds who are very linguistically impaired or impaired in their communication skills, they can be helped to do it as well. But to tell you the truth, I do this with kids who are not communication impaired just to provide them with this really nice reference manual to help them think about what unsolved problems could pop up and to provide them with a reference for solutions that have worked on each unsolved problem in the past. Plan A doesn't do any of that. But that's taking a kid who perhaps is young and who you are perhaps trying to help use their words. Oh, by the way, as the kid is pointing to each of the pictures, what are you doing? Saying the words that correspond with each picture. So as to offer some hope that the kid won't be pointing at pictures for the rest of his life, but would rather be using words eventually, words that you taught him 
how to use. It's the problem-solving binder. There's nothing that takes the place of trying to identify a kid's concerns and treating them as legitimate and being really interested in them. And then using your creativity to find ways for the kid to let you know what their concerns are. That's all I've just described. You've just heard the way in which, and I don't think of myself as being very creative, but you've just heard the way I typically help kids who have communication skill difficulties still communicate. But, of course, it starts with being really interested in what their concerns are in the first place. And then nothing takes the place of trying to come up with solutions that are realistic. Not just, I want you to be what you haven't been, I want you to look like what I want you to look like. That's often not realistic, but we often do it. Even with not-so-challenging kids, we often do it. Can't you just look like what I want you to look like? I mean, we don't exactly say that in that exact way, using those exact words, but we do say it. Geez, I'd kind of rather take the kid for who he is and make it look as good as possible. Not try hard to have the kid conform to my pre-existing beliefs about what he should have looked like in the first place. Nothing takes the place of really being invested, not only in what the kid's concerns are. The amazing thing is we do tend to do that with infants, perhaps because it's really hard to listen to them cry. Amazing, we have a completely different mentality when a three- or four-year-old is crying. Then we call it a temper tantrum. Hmm. Wow. Maybe it's the same thing it was, except that the kid hasn't developed the skills that they need to move beyond that rather primitive response to problems that haven't yet been solved. Nothing is so crucial as being interested in what a kid's concerns are and trying really hard to figure out what they are and coming up with a list of unsolved problems, problems that need to be worked on so that the crying stops, whether it's an infant or a 3-year-old or a 12-year-old, and whether it's crying or spitting or kicking or hitting or throwing or destroying or headbanging or cutting or lying or stealing. And nothing takes the place of involving the kid in generating solutions and in teaching the kid how not only to come up with solutions that work for one's self, that's plan A, but also how to come up with solutions that will work for the other party as well. Boy, there's a skill that will serve you well in the real world. I was uh, speaking in Vermont on Friday. Well, so before I move on to Vermont, yes, you can do collaborative problem solving with a three- or four-year-old. It might not look like the streaming video on the Lives in the Balance website, and the truth is what this tells me is that I probably need to get some video of people doing collaborative problem solving with a three- or four-year-old. I don't have video of kids quite that young, but it would be instructive, it sounds like. 
And by the way, to our emailer, I'm hoping that neither you nor your husband is describing yourselves as a Plan A parent two or three months from now, but I hope you're describing yourselves as Plan B parents. And just remember, those first Plan Bs are for practice. You've got to figure out where it is that you go astray with Plan B, and you've got to figure out what it is that's making it hard for your three- or four-year-old, if anything, to participate in Plan B. And then you'll probably do okay. And if you don't do okay, you know where to call and you know where to listen. You can do collaborative problem solving with a three or four year old because it's the same exact ingredients that would have us being responsive to a crying infant. Uh, I was speaking in Vermont on Friday. This will be the last thing we talk about today. We've only got five minutes left. And uh, somebody asked me about lying which I've always included on the spectrum of looking bad, right there with stealing and kicking and hitting and spitting and throwing and running. But uh, the question got me thinking a little bit more about lying than I often do. And um, one of the things that became clear as I was talking about lying is that lying often, not always, but often occurs when a kid is trying to escape consequences, imposed consequences, when a kid's trying not to get in trouble. Another reason kids lie is they're telling us what they think we want to hear. But isn't that interesting? Both of those reasons for lying would be far more likely to be seen if you were doing plan A, getting in trouble. That's not plan B, that's plan A. Saying what he thinks you want to hear, why would you want to hear anything except his real concern or perspective on a given unsolved problem? I think that's what you want to hear. Just by mere virtue of doing plan B, just by mere virtue of approaching things in a completely different manner, just by the radically different stance you're taking with a kid to try to help him solve a problem. I personally think, and it's been my experience that this is true, you've dramatically reduced the likelihood of being lied to. The person in Vermont was asking the question with lying as an unsolved problem, but the more we talked about it, the more it became clear that lying is actually much more often a response to plan A. How do you reduce the frequency of lying, first of all, stop doing plan A, and you won't give the kid a reason to lie to you. Secondly, don't give the kid the impression that you're going to get upset if you don't hear what you want to hear, and don't give the kid the impression that he's in trouble. Give the kid the impression that y'all have a problem that you need to solve together. And then demonstrate to him just how curious you are about his concern or perspective on the unsolved problem that he may be lying to you about. Be really curious. Drill well for information. Ask the right questions so that you understand his concern or perspective as well as you possibly can. Reassure him that he's not in trouble, that you're not mad, that you're not going to tell him what to do, that you're just trying to understand 
just like what we'd say to an infant if we were saying to the infant, what's the matter? We'll figure it out, and then we'll help you. It's no different. I think that's the way you likely lie to. You try to get the kids' concern on the table, and you make sure in the brainstorming phase of Plan B that his concern gets addressed. Then the problem is solved, and he has nothing to lie to you about. On that note, let's call it a day. Thanks for listening in today or to the recorded version. I hope you found this to be helpful, supportive, and I hope you'll listen in next week for another edition of Collaborative Problem Solving at Home. Until then, take care. Hang in there. You're not alone.